You are listening to the Revolutionary Love and Resilience Podcast. I'm Shelby Lee, and I am so honored to be here with you today. This podcast bridges the personal and professional, creating space for experts in the wellness and well-being field to be both vulnerable and share their deep wisdom from their years of experience. This podcast weaves trauma awareness, inclusivity, and inspiration for every single person to be able to heal, grow, and become who they want to be, to step into their full authenticity and expand their capacity to claim their best lives as they journey through challenges towards revolutionary love and resilience. I want to welcome you today. Betty, to Revolutionary Love and Resilience. As I was just taking a few breaths, feeling into the honor it is to have you here and feeling into your body of work and what it means to my body of work, you know, (laughs) helping people create safer space. I actually had tears in my eyes because of the depth of importance that is what you bring to the world. And so I'm really, yeah, I'm so excited to have this conversation. And I'll tell the audience a little bit about you and then you can tell them whatever you want as well. So this is Dr. Betty Martin. And Betty has had her hands on people professionally over 40 years, some of it legal and some of it questionable. Prior to founding the School of Consent in 2018, she had a private practice as a chiropractor before retiring to explore new careers as a body electric school trained sacred intimate, a certified sexological body worker, a certified surrogate partner, and somatic sex educator. Her explorations in somatic-based therapy, erotic arts, and practices informed her creation of the framework, The Wheel of Consent. She travels around the world teaching touch practitioners, therapists, and professionals how to create empowered agreements in their client sessions. Her long-awaited book, The Art of Receiving and Giving, The Wheel of Consent, debuts in autumn 2020, which is now, right? Which is now, any day now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, anything Mm. you want to add there about your book or your bio? Well, that sounds impressive. (laughs) (laughs) It's a mouthful. You know, you, you just, you just go along your path and you do what's next and uh, it it adds up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm very happy to be here. here. Mm. Yeah. I was thinking about how our last conversation, which maybe we barely remember, it was a while back. (laughs) Yeah. Um, was I was interviewing you for my course called Creating Safer Space. And you mm-hmm. were talking about consent and how you created the wheel of consent and why it's important. And so I'm really looking forward to today to broadening that and talking about what's behind the book and mm-hmm. more of what is consent and why it's important. And so maybe we'll start with some personal and then we'll talk a little bit more about how that connects to what you've been through personally. Thank you. Yeah. I think I want to start with, well, as you said there, I was a chiropractor for about 30 years and really loved it. It was a great profession. And then I 
I woke up one day and I had enough. It's like, okay, I'm done. Okay, what's next? Um, but in the meantime, in my mid-40s, I took a workshop at the Body Electric School. Mm-hmm. And my sexuality was, you know, reasonably functional, but I, I knew that there was more. Mm-hmm. And I took this workshop for women. Um, and part of that workshop included, uh, it was a weekend workshop, part of it included uh, massage with each other. And a very, it was a sexual massage. And on the table, I'm, I'm lying there and this other participant is touching me in blissful ways, including genital touch. And I, and I had this moment of aha and I sat up on the table and I said, I don't have to pick up your socks, do I? <laughs> she said, no, you don't. And I went, woohoo. And something about that really Flick of how much my erotic experience and experience of sexual pleasure was tied to some kind of obligation to give something back. Yeah. And the aha of it was so strong that it made me wonder, well, what have I been thinking all these years? Like, you know, it's not that lovers had been particularly problematic. I had lovely lovers in including my marriage. But to have an experience where it was all about me just for this period of time in this container was life changing for me. It's like, oh my God, this is for me. And there's it's not for the purpose of getting something from me. And that's when I realized Oh shit, what did I think was going on all those other times? And it made me realize that all those other times I felt like the the touch I was getting and the sexual touch I was getting was so that someone else could acquire something from me. Which may or may not be actually true. Uh, you know I'm not accusing my former lovers, but um but the feeling of it was very clear. Mm. What was possible after you realized it didn't have to be that way anymore? Well, I think this is where it gets into the um, the revolutionary love thing that you were talking about. When I would be on the table, and then, so let me back up. So then with a handful of other people at that workshop, we went to another workshop and and we continued to meet together for two or three years regularly to continue exploring. There were uh, six of us. So we kept practicing, and we, we, we started where the workshop left off. We used it um, touch, movement, breath, expression, play, um, a lot of touch, different massages. And when it was my turn to be the receiver of the touch and the pleasure, there's something about receiving a gift like that, which has no obligation, no nothing. It wasn't about love. It wasn't about sex. It wasn't about relationship. 
It wasn't about giving, getting anything back. It wasn't about pleasing anybody. It just was nothing except here's the sensation in my body. What does it do to me? Where does it take me? What happens when I feel this much? And what happens in my, what happens to me emotionally? What happens physically? Um, what happens spiritually? I think it teaches us that we deserve to be loved and cared for and, and we deserve experiences of pleasure just mm-hmm. because we're human. Mm-hmm. And I think also it was really important that it was not in the context of a relationship. Because in the context of a relationship, you're having sex, you're playing erotically, you're making love or whatever. And it's to some degree about the other person and you're expressing affection and, you know, it's, it's very complex. But in these times where we were taking turns being on the table, um, all that was gone. So it, it created an opportunity to notice exquisitely what I was experiencing. Yeah. What happens in my body? What happens in my feelings when I'm experiencing this? Um, so it was a lot of getting to know myself erotically. Um, it was a lot of learning to, um, to receive this gift and let it feed me in ways that I, that were completely new to me. So yeah, that was a, that was a very important few years, and uh, it really became kind of a spiritual path for me. I was just thinking that in my own spiritual path, we talk about just a simple act of paying attention is love. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm hearing, I think, from you that it gave you the ability to turn towards yourself instead of kind of figure out what mm-hmm. was you were having yeah. to give back on the outside, yeah. but you got to put yeah. all of your attention on yourself. There is no substitute for that. I recommend that you experiment with it in a container, in a context, in an agreement where, okay, we're going to take turns. It's it's all about me. Now it's all about you. Not that you enter your regular playtime thinking it's all about you. I don't recommend that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But that you have a container where you have an agreement. Yeah. Um, and the spiritual path, it's kind of funny to use that word because it's a word I don't use much anymore. I, I used to think that I had some kind of spiritual path and, you know, had various kinds of beliefs and practices over the years. But what those explorings, erotic explorings showed me was that the more physical I got the more spiritual it felt. Ah. So the more I was able to attend to just the physical sensation without all the extra stuff, just the sensation, the um, somatic, then it felt more and more spiritual. And so the split between what our culture thinks of as the physical versus the spiritual, that just melted away. And and so they became one and the same. 
and I don't even know what spiritual means anymore. Like, I, does it mean like beyond the physical? Yeah, but what do you mean beyond the physical? Like the physical body. So, mm-hmm. like, how can you be beyond physical? Or, yeah, or energy. Yeah, and what's the physical sensation when you are describing something as energy? Like, does it tingle in your toes? Does it feel hot in your belly? Well, then just say it tingles in my toes and feels hot in my belly. Like, I don't really know what spiritual means anymore. Mm, Except that I know what it doesn't mean. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it means that kind of going with the flow and being kind of passively groovy. Yeah. That, that a lot of people <laughs> talk, talk about. Well, this is a somatically based podcast that we've addressed the concept of spiritual bypass a few times okay. on. Yeah, okay, yeah. And it yeah, sounds absolutely. like, I love you're making that bridge. It can be in the body. How could it not be mm-hmm. in the body? And yeah. how do you feel it through the simplicity of sensations? And yeah. it sounds like that in itself feels, my word is, is divine, yeah. but it could be any word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it is a a very revealing and not an easy journey to notice your sensations exquisitely. Because, you know, it's going to bring up feelings. And, you know, we had many, many tears. I still do have tears come up in states of bliss because it's all in there. And, um, yeah, it's not... It's not all blissful, but in states of bliss, there can be, you know, big, there can be buckets of tears. Yeah. In states of bliss. (laughs) Yeah. For people that might not have had that experience, could you break that down of like what might be happening there? Well, how I experienced it was, and the thing in my feelings was not foreign to me. I had been peer counseling for 40 years before that and other body-based emotional stuff. So that wasn't wasn't really new to me, but but the presence of pleasure, physical pleasure, both erotic and not erotic, um, when well, I'm sorry to say when it was relaxed, but I don't think that's true. I think it was in relaxed states and excited states. Just tears would come, and sometimes they, sometimes they had a story attached to them, like "Oh, this reminds me of X, Y, Z, and that hurt my feelings, and so I cried." But oftentimes <clears throat> there was no story at all; just a release, a relief of tears, and it's very different. From, I mean, there's tears that are caused by pain. And there are tears that are a release of pain. And it's a very different experience. And, and these were tears that were a relief to let go. It's like you've been holding them back for 30 years. And, and for some reason now they come up and you have a safe enough container that you can just let them out. And you don't need to explain them. Mm. They're just there and that's just 
Um, thank God we have tears, you know? Yeah. Oof. Oh, I'm hearing so much permission in what you're saying. Yeah, and I love how you say safe enough place to feel. Mm-hmm. I think so many people, a lot of the clients and students I work with are confused when they start working with me, how much feeling can arise, how oh, yeah. you know they're crying. And I'll say, you know, it might be possible that for the first time you actually feel safe enough mm-hmm. to allow yourself to feel all of these things. And Absolutely. it's amazing what can happen when we have permission yes. to feel it yeah. all, to turn our attention in that way. It's a lot. Yeah, I think that was part of the magic of having this ongoing exploring group and continuing. A a big part of it was permission to feel what we felt. Yeah, because we certainly aren't conditioned to walk around all day and feel what we feel, which seems silly to me. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, you'd probably never get lunch fixed if you did that, you know. (laughs) You wouldn't get the kids fed, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. So part of what we're exploring, or maybe we'll see, is resilience as well. I mm-hmm. heard, you know, that act of paying attention mm-hmm. is that love. How, does this contribute to having more of a sense of resilience in the world in any way for you? Well, I think what you mean by resilience is the ability to recover or deal constructively with pain or obstacles or setbacks or I mean, is that what you mean by resilience? Yep, absolutely. Um, hmm, I think so. I mean, it's not a theme that I necessarily would have thought of, but I think it does have an effect because as I'm learning to experience my body, I'm also learning to rely on my body for the signals of what's good for me, what's not good for me, what appeals to me, what does not appeal to me, what I'm interested in, what I'm not interested in. And um, I think that uh, body-based personal, emotional, very much has to do, very much contributes to a sense of resilience because because I I start to learn and I'm still learning. I mean well I haven't not got this figured out, but I think it it helps me when I notice that I am the source of my own eroticism and the source of my own um, confidence and the source of my own ability to love someone and it comes from inside me yeah to the degree that I can reach it and find it and notice it so in that way it does have something to do with yeah. And you said something about, you know, when I can tune in and notice what's good for me and what's not for me, good for mm-hmm. me. It made me think about uh, the wheel of consent <laughs> mm-hmm. and the conditioning that we carry around saying yes or no to mm-hmm. 
um, interactions or touch with other people. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your, your body of work and your upcoming Mm -hmm. book and make that bridge. Yeah. Well, you can look it up at bettymartin.org and there's a bunch of videos and free stuff and, you know, other stuff. I think what I would like to share is how, uh, how I got started with that. So after exploring with these um, jazz for several years, I, I realized I was interested in, and, and taking more workshops and stuff. I realized I'm interested in offering what I've learned to other people. And so as a, as a practitioner, so I closed my chiropractic practice on Gresham Island and moved into the city and opened a new practice as a sacred intimate, which means who knows what it meant. I mean, we were all experimenting in those days, and basically it meant going into erotic experiences with the client so that they could learn and have experiences that were useful to them. And that's how I described it on my mm. website. They're sure before they were website. <laughs> um, and so I began to offer myself to clients um, and find out what they wanted, what they were learning. And because I had, I had kind of a clinical background, it tended, and plus I'd been peer counseling for all those years, it tended to be a little clinical at first until I kind of got my seawards under me and it got sexier. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that was another place where I continued to learn and explore with erotic expression and sexuality and desire because um, I was offering people a chance to have an erotic experience and sometimes a sexual experience. And, but I was, it was in such a way that it was for the purpose of their becoming more aware and more empowered. And, mm. So I considered it sex work and I, I mean, it, the law would certainly consider it sex work. Um, but I have, Sex or intercourse with everybody, you know, not by long shot, but but entered erotic states with people. Yeah, a lot of that. And so, along the course of those years, um, at one of those workshops, I had learned the three minute game, mm-hmm. which is developed by Barry Fattis, and which has now gone all over the place. Which was, what do you want? me to do to you for three minutes and what you want to do to me for three minutes and took turns asking all the effort and so And I thought, well, here's a way to kind of transition from the talking, history-taking part of the session into the touching part of the session. And it'll sort of give me a sense of, well, what's the current skill level, what's their current comfort level with touch and stuff. And so um, so I started doing that with clients. And that's when it became really clear how difficult it was for people 
to notice what they wanted and ask for it. And, and I, I changed the question from what do you want me to do to you to how do you want me to touch you because it was a small, it was a narrower question. Um, and you ask people, how do you want me to touch you? And many, many people would say, oh, however you want, it doesn't matter. Or, or what do you think is best? Oh. Or, well, such and such would be okay. Mm. That's true, it may be okay, but it's not what I asked you. <laughs> and, and people had a really hard time noticing what they wanted and feeling comfortable enough to ask for it. Um, and then the other question, how do you want to touch me? That completely threw people for me because I, I think, and they'd say, well, however you want, and, and you, it, you know, whatever you want's okay, or is that okay for me to do? And what do you mean? I don't understand the question. And so, um, so I, because I was using that with pretty much everybody, I had many, many opportunities to notice where people got stuck. Yeah. And if you're honest with yourself as a practitioner, when you see it in your client, you also see it in yourself. Mm. So I began to see, oh, where, this is where I'm stuck. Like when someone is asking me what I want, am I able to even notice it? Can I acknowledge what I want instead of trying to pretend like it's about somebody else? And, you know, what am I not asking for that I actually would like to have? And, you know, where am I not saying no when I really want to say no? And, you know, yeah. so it, so it's a lot of personal learning as well as learning about other people. Wow. I really want to underline and circle what you just said about as a practitioner, it, it's going mm -hmm. on in us if it's going on in oh, them. Yes. And a lot oh, of people yes. miss that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's really true. Yeah. That's really true. I had this one client comes to mind where we were taking turns asking these questions, and this was over several sessions, and it became his turn to ask me, how do you want to touch me? And he was just terrified. This, this was a person who's a man in his 60s, was really very severely unconfident and wanted to gain some confidence to, to date women. And so this was three or four sessions in, and, and he came his turn to ask me that question, how do you want? And he, like, screwed up his courage, and like, okay, oh, can I, you know, it's like, it's like watching someone who's about to jump into a cold river. <laughs> and so finally he says he just burst out, okay, do whatever you want. Wow. And I said, whoa, is that what you thought the question was? He said, yes, isn't that the question? I said, no. The question is, how do you want to touch me? And then I'll ask what I want to do. And then you get to decide if that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. And he just was silent for a moment and he said, I do. And I realized then that it had never occurred to him the right choice about how he was touched. Mm. Well, no wonder relationship is scary. Like, you can't afford to get in the same room with someone yeah. if you don't know that you have a choice. Really scary. And 
Yeah, that was a big, that was a big aha for me of like this fundamental factor that has to be in place of knowing that you have a choice and having the skill to exercise that choice, which is a different thing. And then I then I looked at myself and I said, okay, now this guy's got it really big, but I've also got it. Like, where is it that I forget that I have a choice? Mm-hmm. And um, so then you know, I look at that both personally and sexually as well as in the world. Yeah. Did you find that it was gendered at all, that people of a particular gender answered or couldn't answer the questions more than another gender? Yes and no. When when I ask people how they wanted to be touched, people of all genders tend to have trouble with that. I, I didn't find that that was particularly gendered. But when I ask people how they wanted to touch me, um, I found that it was often more difficult for men, this way, because I think it's because men are taught that their desires are bad and that they're bad and they can't be trusted and that they don't want to be that guy that takes advantage of somebody or whatever. Um, and very often when it clicked for women, it was like a jailbreak. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is possible. And so it was very often easier for women. And if a couple came in, a male-female couple, um, the woman would often get it pretty quickly. And, you know, would often struggle with it. and I think part of it is, and I, I talk about this on the website, part of it is our ability to take in sensation with our hands. And I'll give an exercise about that on the website that women, I think, it's much easier for women, almost always, to find pleasant sensations in their hands mm-hmm. than for men. I don't think it's because women have more nerve endings. I think it's because women are taught, and this is a very general rule, women are taught that it's okay to have feelings more than that. Little boys are taught, you know, you don't, don't have feelings, don't cry, don't have anything else. So um, I imagine that that's probably a factor. I don't think it's a factor that women have more than anything. That makes sense. Conditioning is a lot. Conditioning is a lot. Yeah. But it's it's almost always harder for men to wake up their hands and take in pleasure with their hands. Mm, that's so helpful for me to know when I'm sharing mindfulness, often I'll point out hands could be a resource and it's just good mm-hmm. to know what the, that mm-hmm. there more might yeah. be going on there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, not everyone, of course, but you know, some of the people who got it right away were men, but as a general rule. Yeah. Hmm. I know before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about trauma in the world and, you know, what it was like to be a woman (laughs) in this world, you know, and I don't know if it still applies, but I wanted to make sure to not skip over that and just take a minute and check in with you. 
does sexism still apply to my life? Yeah, I think so. I don't feel as bound by it as I was when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I remember when I I grew up in a very um, traditional southern male-led family with my military father and four brothers, who three of whom also went into the military. And, um, you know, girls, and I was the only girl, girls had things that they were allowed to do and boys had different things that they were allowed to do and all that stuff. I think when I became aware of it was in my early 30s. I had my second child in arms, baby. And I went to a weekend workshop for women with uh, the evaluation counseling. And I'm sitting in this room full of women, 20 or so, and I have a baby in my arms. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a room full of women. Oh, I guess I'm one. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, well, what does that mean? And, you know, that began a whole journey of exploring how sexism had impacted me and and reading and doing stuff. And one of the things that, I mean, there's there's the outer aspects of sexism by how you're treated by society. And the gender expectations and the stereotypes and the desexualized and all this stuff. And then there's the internal piece and this is what I struggled with more, which was discounting my own thinking in favor of a man's. Because, I don't know, that's just what we did, you know. And, and noticing it um, was a big deal yeah. for me. It was like a, it was shocking. And it was very difficult to wrestle with noticing that oh I'm discounting my own thinking and my own way of thinking and my own way of, of experiencing the world and experiencing my feelings and um, yeah and that was that was I think one of the big things for me. Yeah. and how it showed up sexually was that was that aha that I had on the table, which I described a while ago about, oh, this is actually, this, there's an experience that's for me, that's not about me giving something back. And one of the things that I learned at that first workshop was that my heroes belong to me. Mm. And that was another thing that was like, it was such an aha that made me wonder, well, who did I think it belonged to? And I realized that, well, I thought it belonged to men. And, you know, my, my eroticism was, was and was supposed to be in response to someone else's interest and desire. Yeah, that's what you learned how to do. That's what you learn how to do as a girl. You know? yeah. And it's not just pleasing the other person, which, you know, is nice to do both ways, but it was like their experience is the real experience, and mine is kind of an auxiliary. And it was 
by experimenting with this group, which all happened to be women, for those years that really broke that down. Beautiful. Mm. I definitely know sexism still applies in 2020. (laughs) I meant more to the current conversation, (laughs) but it made me wonder as you're talking about it, and now what's your relationship to identifying as a woman if you identify as a woman in the world, given the history that you came in with? I do identify as a woman, and I realize that identifying as the gender that you were given at birth is you know, it's a privilege. It's like not something that I had to wrestle with. Yeah. Right? And I did have to wrestle with what it means to be a woman and what it has what it has done to me. Not being a woman is not the problem. It's being treated as a woman in a system that mistreats you. That's the problem. So I did have to wrestle with that. I was wondering, you know, now in 2020, like, is there empowerment there? And it sounds like you answered it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't think much about sexism's effect now as much as I used to. And I feel like I've outgrown a lot of it. But, you know, hell yeah, it's definitely still there. And, um, also, I'm of the age where I'm no longer sexualized by society in general. Mm-hmm. And so the end, and, and uh, my hormones are no longer raging, you know, so, so that things, some things are a little easier. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing about that. It's really helpful. I know we just have a few minutes left and I want to hear from you just about a little about the wheel of consent and your book and your inspiration for putting your book out there in the world. I'd love for everyone to know about it. Yeah. Thank you. So back when I was experimenting with mostly with clients and with this giving and receiving and asking those two questions, I began to notice that, Hey, these fit together in a certain kind of way. And that's where the wheel of consent came from, which is basically Noticing that there's a difference between who is doing and who it's for. I'm touching you, is it for you, or I'm touching you, is it for me? That's essentially what the real consent is. Mm. And so in 07, I started taking notes for a book. And I imagined, oh, this would be 100 pages, this little thing. And it's this kind of cool thing I found. And isn't that neat? (laughs) (laughs) And then, so I started writing and I was hit by, I was like hitting a brick wall of fear about saying this stuff. And this is where some of the sexism came from. Because I, I was just way out of proportion fear. Because it's not actually a dangerous thing, what I'm doing. Um, but I realized that, well, Nice girls don't know the things that I know. Because I, you know, I can do stuff like that. Nice girls don't know the things that I know. And if they do, they sure don't say them. And if they say them, they sure as heck don't put them in a book. <laughs> and so I had this feeling like, oh, my God, I'm gonna, you know, you stand up above the crowd, you get shot. 
before you get burned at the stake and just, you know, and what does anybody care what I think anyway? Because I'm just a girl, blah, blah, blah. You know, so all that stuff came up to be reckoned with over the years. It was very, very difficult to write the first two years or so. Yeah. And, yeah, again, more tears. So it's really only been the last two or three years that it's gotten easier. And now it's, now it's easy. It's okay. Mm. Um, but so this, this book is about the real consent, and it's a how-to book. I take you through experiences that that let you experience each of the four quadrants of the wheel. And then I get then I give you the theory. But the main thing is is the experience of it. Yeah. Oh, I am so excited to buy this book. I've been talking about the wheel of consent forever. <laughs> when I met you three years ago in Bali, you were there yeah. working on your book, right? Yeah. Yeah. It works. Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's it's embarrassing how long it's taken, but that's how long it's taken. So it sounds like it's just right. And I'm very relieved to have it done. And somebody said, "Well, how will you know when you're done?" I said, "I'll just I'll just stop." <laughs> and that's kind of what I'm done. It's a perfect no, but it's as good as it's going to get because I'm done. Mm, I wish everyone could <laughs> see the look on your face when you said stop. <laughs> It was very clear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to read uh, just a little bit about it. So if that's okay Okay. with you, Um, because it was really striking to read about it. And um, there's this paragraph here that I want everyone to hear. It says, uh, in her framework, the wheel of consent, Betty traces the fundamental roots of consent back to our childhood conditioning. As children, we are taught that to be good We must ignore our body's discomfort and be compliant to finish our food, even if we're full, to go to bed, even if we're not tired, to let relatives hug and kiss us, even if we don't want to. The lesson we learn is that our feelings don't matter and that we don't have a choice but to go along with what's happening, whether or not we want it. As adults, this conditioning remains with us until we have an opportunity to unlearn it, which is why consent violations are often only called out after the violation has occurred because we have not been taught or empowered to value or express our internal signals first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what you've been talking about today, right? That's what, I, that's what I've been talking about. And that's what working with all those um, clients over the years showed me. Mm. I feel very lucky to have been able to play this with hundreds of clients. I, I don't think I would have noticed it if I just played it with a few friends. Yeah. And I I just want to honor what you said about the journey it took you, the fear, the standing above the crowd, and thank you for writing it anyways, because I know Mm -hmm. it's going to change the world. So, yeah. It's really good to be here with you today. I wish we had more time. Thank you. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much for being part of this show and being part of this love revolution. If you love this podcast, please share it with your people and leave a five-star review so that we can get the word out. If you're a practitioner or on your own healing journey, head on over and check out creatingsaferspace.com, which is one of my passion projects and is open for enrollment now. 
You'll get access to it the moment you sign up. Or join my mailing list for all sorts of revolutionary love and trauma-aware support at shelby-lee.com. See you next episode.